Hey lovelies, before we get started, a quick update on the All-American dress. Some sizes are sold out and most sizes are running very low. This is especially true for sizes 12 plus, I want to say like 12 through 24. As always, if your size is sold out, then be sure to sign up for the wait list. I am, I am anticipating returns and lovelies will be notified of restocks in the order they sign up for the wait list. So the sooner you sign up, the better. I do it this way to avoid the mad dash that is a restock notification when there's really only one or two for, you know, dozens of people. It's Trust me, it's less stressful this way, so just get yourself on that list as early as possible. If you're not familiar with the All-American dress, it is my most perfect version of the classic denim shirt dress, featuring a classic shirt collar, flared shape, slight puff sleeve, and gold stitching details. I also included extra considerations for modesty, like an extended inner placket for coverage between and behind the buttons. Oh, and you're welcome because it has pockets. Constructed from a durable and timeless dark blue denim, this is your year-round go-to dress any day of the week. You can view it anytime at impactfashionnyc.com. I've also included a direct link in the show notes. Thanks so much for your continued support and enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. Squits and on today's show, I talk with a nutrition therapist and founder of Intuitive Eating about the way we relate to food. She shares the harms of weight stigma, the intuitive eater's approach to emotional eating, why she likes to think of eating through the lens of satisfaction, and how to maintain our ch- children's natural instinct for intuitive eating. Resh is changing the world. I don't remember the first time I encountered the concept of intuitive eating, though I'm sure it was somewhere on social media. I do remember being blown away by this completely new approach to food. We're so used to thinking of ourselves as either on diets or not, as someone who cares about our supposed health or not, that removing weight from the picture was a completely radical new approach that Elise developed. Uh, from zero to four, my parents lived with my grandparents and I was in bliss because I was the first grandchild and I was doted on and it was just wonderful. And then my brother came at four, when I was four and then uh, we moved into our own apartment and things were still good. This was in Chicago. I was born in Chicago. And I remember being um, out on the street in front of the apartment building, playing with my friends, doing double Dutch jump rope and all kinds of games with balls and free as a bird and then we moved to California and those first couple of years were were great also and then there was some trauma that happened when I was 11 and things went a little bit downhill in terms of my self-esteem and you know sense of self and there was some commentary in my house about bodies and shapes and that my mother was not a dieter so I never and nor was she focused on her body she had a very hyperactive um, thyroid and didn't you know never thought about her weight so I didn't get that input and in high school Believe it or not, this is a long time ago, Rivki. I'm going to be in private practice 40 years, and this is my second career. So this was a long time ago. I was not aware of diets. I was not aware of um, any connection between what you eat and what your body size is, or that one would even think of changing one's body size. It wasn't until I got to college, um, and maybe I'm going a little bit too far because you asked me as a child, but um, 
my freshman year of college, I went to UCLA and I was living in the dorm. And the very first day of classes, I walked down to the cafeteria to, to um, make a lunch to take to school. And I'm in the line and I get up to the top and there's this wonderful top of the line and there's this wonderful tuna salad in front of me. And I pack it onto a Kaiser roll, you know, nice, big, delicious sandwich. And the girl behind me goes, oh my God, like that. And I thought, oh no, did a fly get on it or something? And I turned to her and I said, what's the matter? She said, that's so fattening. And that was the first I ever heard anything that had to do with diet culture, which of course was not a term then anyway. But I was, I was a happy kid up until about 11. That's fascinating to me that you managed to go that long without having been exposed to, I mean, like you said, diet culture is a, is a relatively new term. Um, can you explain to people what we mean when we say sure. diet culture, what that is? So diet culture elevates and idolizes the culturally thin ideal, whatever that ideal is in the time. And right now it's pretty thin. Um, if you look back in history, there have been many times when that was not the cultural ideal, but now it's a culturally thin ideal and it equates it with health and moral virtue. So what do people do? They want to elevate their status by trying to reach that thin ideal. And so they end up going on diets, which are the, the really evil and toxic. And um, they end up elevating certain foods and denigrating other foods, good foods, bad foods, and can't be successful because diets don't work end up feeling bad about themselves. The other piece of it, and so much of my work today is about social justice. And I believe that all people in all sizes of whatever their marginalized identity is are equal. Everybody deserves dignity and respect. And uh, diet culture really um, is very hard on people in larger bodies because they don't feel like they fit into you know, this thin ideal. So part of my goal in my work is to uh, help everybody understand that, you know, our weight is programmed, DNA programmed, and it doesn't make us, it's not who we are. Our weight is not who we are. We're, we're so much more than the size of our bodies. Amen. You use this phrase, moral virtue, which uh -huh. when, when I hear that, I think that, you know, when we think of someone who's in a larger body, when, so when we think of someone who's fat, we tend to associate that with sloppiness or laziness mm -hmm. or someone who doesn't care about themselves. Is that what you mean when you use that phrase? Well, it means that you're a good person if you do it all right. You know, it's that mm -hmm. kind of black and white way of thinking. And what's wrong with you? You're a bad person. You don't have willpower. You're lazy. You're, you know, all of those things. If you, you know, if you just can't stick to those rules and the weight stigma, that's a result of this, um, you know, uh, toxic way of thinking is so dangerous for people. Weight, it does not equate to health. Weight stigma endangers health. In what way? Okay, so if someone doesn't feel good about their body, use gender neutral terms, if someone doesn't feel good about their body, uh, they might be afraid to go to the doctor. I just had a, a new doctor I went to for, um, a rheumatologist, doesn't matter, just my thumb was hurting. <laughs> anyway, and, um, and the nurse asked me to get on the scale. Now, I don't get on scales. I haven't gotten on a scale in 20 years. And I said, no, 
you know, I'm not going to get on the scale. And she said, oh, well, we need to know a weight. I just threw out some number and I have no idea exactly what it is. And I talked to the doctor about it afterwards and said, you know, a lot of people won't come to the doctor if they're worried about the judgment they're going to get from the medical community that thinks that everything, even a hard thumb, can be fixed by losing weight. And she was very open and I liked her. It was the first time I had met her. So number one, if you feel you're going to be stigmatized by the medical community and a doctor's going to tell you that the solution to whatever your medical problem is, is lose weight, and you know that you've tried to do that forever and it's not working, you don't go to the doctor. And so many people are not diagnosed with something that could be, you know, helped at a very early stage because they're not going to the doctor. Number two, if people um, feel bad about their bodies, they often don't want to feel themselves in movement. So they don't move their bodies or they don't want to risk somebody driving by if they're taking walking on the street and, you know, some awful person making a comment about their bodies. So they don't move. Being sedentary is a problem in terms of health. Movement is, you know, does help you maintain, you know, some level of health. So there's that. Uh, weight stigma is... Um, it's one of the social determinants of health that if you have weight stigma, your cortisol levels are very high. You're stressed all the time. So cortisol is your stress hormone, which is really the hormone that causes more inflammation in the body. So that's not good for your health either. So weight stigma in its very um, you know, sneaky way can really impact health. But a, the size of a person's body itself has no impact on health. health. Right. Like we know that there are no diseases that are exclusive to larger people. There's exactly. nothing like thin people have diabetes and joint pain and all of those things that tend to get thrown around as, yes. you know, well, if you're so big, then your knees will hurt. I know plenty of thin people whose knees hurt. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely a part of it as well. When, so the way that I came to you and the way that most people know you is as um, one half of the intuitive eating people. Um, and intuitive eating is a framework for relating to food uh, that you developed with Evelyn Triboli yes. a million years ago, like in the 90s, I think. <laughs> I'm, I'm little. <laughs> so <laughs> the 90s are a very long time ago for yes, me. <laughs> yes. No, they weren't for me. Um, so I'm, I'm not little. <laughs> I'm definitely um, older. In any case, uh, yes, it was 1993 that we began writing the first book. And it came just for out reference, I was born in 94, for the record. So I, I am a, 93 is a million years ago yes, for me. Born then. So <laughs> that was the first edition, which came out in 1995. It's been around now for almost 27 years. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned diets, right? So we know that diets don't work. And this is easy for us to know that diets don't work, by the way, because I would dare to say that close to 100% of the people listening to this podcast have at some point dieted, maybe with varying levels of success, I guess we could call it, maybe with varying levels of losing, of achieving the results that they were going for, of becoming smaller. Um, and I would also, you know, I would be pretty comfortable betting that close to 100% of the people listening to this podcast have, they did that for a, for a short amount of time. Maybe they did it for, you know, maybe even what we would consider a long amount of time, a year or so, but it eventually stopped. They go back to the original behavior, usually end up worse off than they were before, gaining back more weight than they did Correct. originally, um, and probably just generally feeling like crap. Right. So we know that that doesn't work like this. And we, we just know this from our own lives. Um, 
and even in the situations I would say, like I happen to have one person in my life who we would call like a diet success story, I guess. They lost about 50 pounds around like 50 years ago or so and have kept it off since um, and have basically stuck to that program since. And yeah. I would not describe this person as someone who is comfortable in their body. I would not describe this person as someone who is um I don't want to use the phrase happy because that's that's such a that's such a broad kind of word. But this is not someone who I I don't aspire to have their relationship with their body um, and certainly not their relationship with what they eat. So even in the like, you know, the the the, the small segment of people who have who, who do achieve the desired results with diets, um, it's it's not it's like, do you really want to live that way? Is that really how you want to be relating to the world? And intuitive eating is in a lot of ways the answer to that. Um, and, and I'd love for you to talk more about that. Okay. Well, first of all, the science, the data, the real scientific studies show that 95% of people who lose weight on diets, but after, within a couple of years, typically gain the weight back, two thirds of them gain even more weight back. So that 5%, which people would say, well, those are the unicorns. Uh, the 5% that I have met fall in one or two categories. One of them is uh, someone who's very rigid, as you're describing this person. Uh, to me, I would, I would diagnose that person with disordered eating or maybe even an eating disorder when they're having to say, stay so perfectly on a plan that they can't be free in life. They can't get the full satisfaction of eating. The other percentage is the rare person. I, I, I have an example. Years ago, uh, this, this lovely man came into my house to fix the air conditioning and he, I had not met him and he asked me what I did for a living. And I told him and he went, um, he said, oh, oh yeah, I used to be fat. I didn't know I was fat. My wife told me I was fat. So I stopped eating potato chips and I don't, okay. Now, the, this guy didn't go on a diet. This guy was just not, he was oblivious to what he was eating, wasn't present, and he wasn't emotionally attached to food. So when he decided to cut out some things, it wasn't a deprivation for him. He didn't really care. And that's a tiny percent of that 5%. So yeah, look at those, you know, look at that data. Diets don't work. And they perpetuate the stigma I was talking about. They perpetuate the oppression to people in larger bodies as if, you know, over people in larger bodies as if there's something wrong with them. Right. Yeah. And so so intuitive eating is kind of the answer to that. It's yes. this. So what what is intuitive eating? What does okay. it look like? What does it mean? And why is it not just another diet? Okay, well, there's a lot of questions and I'll try to remember them. First of all, intuitive eating is a self-care, compassionate framework for helping people reconnect with their internal wisdom that we're born with. The um, Really all babies, except perhaps maybe some that have some developmental you know, disabilities or something, but the majority of babies are born with the ability to be in touch with hunger and fullness. We're born with it and uh, with the instinct to know what foods taste good and what foods don't. We have it in us. But the majority of people are distracted and taken away from that internal wisdom. So the intuitive eating framework, which is based on 10 principles, which are not rules, they're just guideposts, uh, help people remove all those obstacles, all that. I like to think of it as you know an onion with all these layers and get off the outer layers and you get to the core, which is your internal wisdom. So that's what intuitive eating is. However, I have a better definition that's more descriptive. I like to look at intuitive eating as connected to the human brain. 
human brain has three major parts that are involved um, in intuitive eating. So the first part's the reptilian brain or the um, this is this is the most primitive part of the brain that the dinosaurs had. It's the instinctual part of the brain. It is the brain. It's the part of the brain that doesn't think, doesn't feel, just survival. So the dinosaurs just went for the little dinosaur to eat or whatever they ate, because there was an instinct to survive, and that sits on the top of our brainstem because we still have that part of our brains. And then uh, mammals have another developed layer of the brain, which is called the limbic or mammalian brain. And that's the seat of emotions and social behaviors. And that's, as I said, sits on top of that matrix of instinct. And it can impact our instincts, our emotions. I mean, if we're very, very stressed and anxious, we might not hear our hunger, or we might want to soothe our hunger, you know, or soothe our feelings, I should say, with more food than... Um, our bodies actually need. So there's that piece of the brain. And then the neocortex, which is what differentiates us from other mammals, from our cats and our dogs. We know the cats and dogs have feelings, uh, but they can't express their feelings in sentences. So as humans, we have the neocortex, which is the cognitive part of the brain. So intuitive eating is a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought. So we have to look at all those parts understanding what it is that we need to give us the most satisfaction in eating. So for example, and this is a kind of sad example, I have worked with some clients who have had COVID and they've lost their taste and their smell. And so their instinct to eat, their appetite is gone because that's what helps you want to eat. You smell the food, you see the food, you taste the food. And yet they know they have to eat because it's survival. So they use the cognitive part of their brain to say, okay, we don't have an appetite right now. Let's hope it comes back. Eat. And as I said before, sometimes emotions will uh, alter our instincts. And so we use the cognitive part of our brain. So it's a nice interplay of those three parts. Right. And see, the thing that I think was most difficult for me to understand about intuitive eating was... I, and, and and this is just also due to being so used to this dieting framework. You're either on a diet or you're not. Right. And this kind of, I don't want to call it an in-between, but it kind of feels like an in-between where it's uh, like a, it's, it feels like kind of paying attention to what you're, to how you feel towards food without being so rigid about what you can and can't eat. Um, it's that that was the thing that was so hard for me to wrap my head around was that not thinking about these 10 guideposts as you call them specifically not rules as just another diet as just another you know this is what you can't eat this is what you can eat so i want to address that first of all intuitive eating the goal of it is not weight loss diet the goal of diets or the traditional way of thinking of a diet is weight loss Intuitive eating has nothing to do with weight loss. Your weight is going to be what it's going to be, whatever, you know, wherever it lands based on your DNA. And intuitive eating is not an absolutist. It's, that's why I was saying these are not rules. It's not the hunger fullness diet where you can only start eating when you're at a particular number of hunger and you must stop eating at a particular number of fullness. It's not that. Those, um, you know, levels of hunger and fullness are only there to help you get the most satisfaction out of your eating. If you start eating when you have no appetite, then it's not going to be very pleasurable or satisfying. I've often asked clients, would you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on your way to your favorite restaurant for dinner? And they all look at me like a lace. No, of course not. Why are you asking that? And I said, well, why not? And they say, because I wouldn't have an appetite. And it, so I said, 
yeah, intuitively, you know, your food's going to taste better if you're moderately hungry. If you're ravenous, if you haven't eaten all day, which some people do, they just, you know, are trying to set themselves up to allow themselves to have this incredible dinner at night. Well, you're so hungry, you're in something called primal hunger. You're releasing chemicals from the brain, one of them called neuropeptide Y, which will just send you out to get as many calories and carbs as you can possibly get, because the brain can only function on carbohydrates. So, um, you know, it's not about rigidity. It's about how can you find the best way to get the most pleasure and satisfaction out of eating? And it goes back to that moral imperative. You know, it's like, let's take the morality out of, out of eating. We're allowed to have pleasure. We're allowed to have that sensual uh, experience for fortunately many times a day. Right. And I don't want to go through, you know, the, the 10 kind of guideposts of intuitive eating. Now they're very easily Googleable, and, and the books are out there, get them from your library or buy the books. Like that's, that's not what I want to spend time on right now, but I do want to focus on one aspect of it that you've mentioned already, which is this emotional component. I will fully admit that I am a fan of emotional eating. I have gone through many a breakup with many a friend with many a pints of Haagen-Dazs. That's just the way we roll. And and I do find myself feeling better after, you know, in a, um, you know, in, and, and that's probably more about like one of my, I, I don't think I'll ever forget this. A friend of mine had a particularly bad breakup and we sat on the lawn outside my parents' house. We, uh, there's a 7-Eleven nearby. So we went to, um, we went, we went to the 7-Eleven. We both picked our favorite pints. We went and we sat on the lawn. It was in the middle of summer. It was a beautiful day and took a spoon straight to the pint and just basically trashed her ex. And it was fantastic. And I don't think I will forget that for as long as I live. It was, uh, you know, and, and, and it, and I, and I felt better afterwards. I felt better for her. I think she felt better afterwards. And, and, and there have been similar experiences in my life where I find that, you know, yeah, sometimes chocolate does help. And it does. Yeah. So where, how does that, you know, okay, so what's your reaction it. to that? Yes. I love it. I love it. First of all, think about an infant who's just gone through the birth canal, you know, is suddenly in the lights, the bright lights, it's kind of traumatic. And what happens very soon after birth, they're given either sugar water or milk, milk has sugar in it. And it calms them because carbohydrates actually lead to, and so it's a chemical process to more serotonin in the brain, which calms you. So we learn from birth that food is comforting and calming. So why would we denigrate that? Why would we say that's bad? We're allowed to have comfort with food. Now, here's the difference between a, a dieter and an intuitive eater. A dieter doesn't allow certain foods most of the time, and then something emotional happens and they go, okay, now I have a right to have this because I'm really upset and I need, you know, I'm allowed to have that ice cream, but they, for the rest of the time, they're not. And while they're eating the ice cream, there's a narrative in the brain of, well, I'll be good again. And this is in quotes. I'll, I won't do this next week. And so they're going to try to get as much in as they can and maybe make it even a binge weekend because on Monday they're going to be quote unquote good. The intuitive eater says, yeah, I need some extra comforting. I'm going to get that ice cream. It's so comforting to me. And they sit down and they stay present and they eat as much of it as they want. They may get to a point where they're realizing they're really full. And if they eat much more, they're not going to feel very well. So they stop knowing they can have the ice cream tonight again, if they wanted, or tomorrow or any day for the rest of their lives. They're not being driven by a sense of future deprivation telling themselves they won't be able to have it later or the or the only way they're allowed to have it is if they're upset which means if they're not upset they shouldn't have it which also means maybe I shouldn't have it if I am upset there's so many negatives there 
So intuitive eaters are free to eat whatever they want, whenever they want, and stay present and notice how their body feels. A big part of intuitive eating is something called interoceptive awareness, listening to the signals your body gives you. So if you know you can have this ice cream, we're using it as an example forever, and you're starting to get too full, and by the way, it's maybe not tasting as good as it did when you first started and you were a little bit hungry, you're, you may get sad at that moment. I call it the sadness of saying enough. I wrote a paper about that. Um, but you're able to say, okay, it's all right. A little bit later, I can have some more when it'll taste good again. So there's a huge difference between how you approach emotions as a dieter and how you approach emotions as an intuitive eater. No guilt with intuitive eating. No sense of there's something wrong with you if you need to comfort yourself with food. So it's almost, I don't want to call it a free pass, but it's permission to fully enjoy the experience of the breakup ice cream. Fully enjoy it. No judgment and no sense of I'm being, uh, you know, I'm being bad now and I'll be good later. I better not have it in the future. It's like, I can have ice cream anytime I want. And right now that's what I want. And that's what make, is making me feel good. And then they don't have any lingering judgment of themselves because a lot of people do in the moment they're going oh this is great and then afterwards they'll go oh my god i just ate a whole pint of ice cream and then they judge it right and then they and and then they're like you said they're judging themselves and mm -hmm. and then you end up feeling probably worse than you did before because you know before i was feeling bad about a breakup and now i'm feeling bad about the breakup and also how i dealt with that breakup well right and if you have a different framework like pretty much every afternoon i'll have some decaf coffee and some cookies of some sort I have no judgment about that. That's what I want. That's what I have. It's comforting. It's nice. It's, it's, you know, between my morning of a lot of stressful work and my afternoon of a lot of stressful work. And yes, it's comforting, but I don't judge it. And it's great. And I don't want the whole box because in fact, they get some of the cookies in my house get stale and I have to throw them out because um, it is just this natural sense of, okay, I've had enough for right now. It's not tasting as good. I don't really want more. But right. it was emotional to begin with because it was comforting. Right. And you, you keep going back to these body signals, um, you know, the, the signs that our body gives us. What are some of those body signals that, you know, that, that we might not even be aware are signals, you know, that our body is giving us that we need to eat or stop or, or oh, whatever? Yes. How, how does that work? The first piece of it is a commitment to staying present. There's a lot of mindfulness and in intuitive eating. So staying present to what your body's telling you, to staying present to how food tastes. Well, some people who aren't staying present, who get caught up in their work, don't give themselves that break for lunch or their, you know, the break for a snack or whatever it is. What's happening is they start suppressing their hunger signals, especially if they do this often throughout the day. There's some people that don't eat all day and they're not getting the hunger signals. <laughs> this is a sidebar, Ripke, but they don't get the hunger signals because when they're not eating, they're breaking down their own body tissue to supply the, um, the nutrients that they need from the inside out. They're, they're stored at glycogen, they're their stored amino acids and protein that can get converted to glucose, they're breaking down their body, which takes away the hunger signals. So in any case, they don't have hunger signals throughout the day, but all of a sudden they're starting to get a little fuzzy. They're not being able to concentrate so well. They're starting to get a little bit of a headache. And um, those are signals that you've gone too far without hunger. So there's, there's that. It's the moodiness, cranky. I have a friend that we all feed when her blood sugar starts to drop because she becomes pretty cranky and impossible <laughs> if, she's, if she gets too hungry. Um, it can affect our mood. It can affect how we feel physically. Right. And 
so you you here's the thing also for a long time i thought of intuitive eating as you know eat when you're hungry stop when you're full which i think is probably like a really i don't even want to say that it's a really dumbed down version because it because it doesn't really line up it's not even um I'd love for you to expand more on that. You did mention it earlier that this is not the eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full diet. Right. So what, what do you mean by that? Okay, so I like to look at intuitive eating through a lens of satisfaction. I think it's the driving force of intuitive eating. So if you're thinking about hunger fullness in relation to how can I get the most satisfaction from my food, then you're guided to eat, as I said earlier, when you have some appetite, when you're comfortably hungry versus no hunger or so hungry you're in primal hunger that you could eat the whole bread basket you know, when it comes out. So satisfaction. Okay. Then I think I'll eat when I'm comfortably hungry. Fullness. You get to a point of, it just doesn't taste as good as you're starting to get full. So it's not as satisfying. It's just remarkable to me how amazing certain foods will taste when you're hungry. And then when you've had enough to satisfy your hunger, they're not bad. They just don't taste as amazing as they do in the beginning so if you're thinking about fullness through that lens of satisfaction it helps you decide to stop when you've had enough to satisfy your body and your tongue and knowing that for the rest of your life for the rest of that day for the rest of the year you can have whatever you want whenever you want so you see it's it's really simplistic to look at as hunger fullness new intuitive eating is very nuanced so if you look through at through this lens of satisfaction, it can actually uh, guide all of the principles. I mean, if you are um, body shaming, if you're not having respect for your body, you might have the most incredible meal in front of you, but you but you hate yourself so much that you don't get satisfaction from the meal. And you, I once had a, a patient, I, I worked in an eating disorder unit really about 35 years ago. And I had a patient who said she didn't think she deserved to eat because she had too much fat on her body and that should be, you know, that should take care of her. And so she had so much body judgment and so much um, negative feeling about herself that she never enjoyed eating. She always felt guilty about it. Many of the other principles. I mean, if you're living in a world of diet police and sounds like you know a lot of people who are diet police, you know. Oh, yes. Who doesn't? <laughs> you, shouldn't eat this, you shouldn't eat that. This is good. This is bad. Oh my God, this is killing you. Oh, this is going to make you fat. You know, all of that. Really hard to sit down and get pure satisfaction in your meal, in any of your meals, unless you stand up to the diet police and you say, I'm setting a boundary. Please no conversation about what I eat or how I look. And then you can be free to really enjoy your food. So, um, as I say, it's nuanced. It's not a very simplistic reductionist hunger fullness diet. It is, that's it's the antithesis of that. Right. And I think also the fact that it is so nuanced, it's, it is kind of, you know, you have to put your big girl pants on and really think about it to, to, <laughs> to it. understand, you know what I mean? It's not something, listen, it's not something that can get, can get explained in 15 seconds. It's, it's not something that is easily reduced to a meme or, or, those kinds of things. So it is often misunderstood and becomes harder to explain. And then people just either put it in this category of being another diet or people who are in denial. Oh, okay. Okay, fine. So you just don't want to put in the work. You just don't want to pay attention to what you're eating. You just don't, you just don't want to do like we've been talking about the good work of being thin, whatever that is. And, and so you're giving up and this is your excuse for giving up, which is just not true. It's just that it's complicated. Well, yeah. And the other misconception, the idea of making peace with food, um, people think, well, it means eat whatever I want in whatever quantity at whatever time. 
well, yeah, you can, but you also want to bring in that awareness, as I said, the interoceptive awareness. How does my body feel? How much of this um, is giving me satisfaction? It's not a free-for-all. It's a very uh, mindful process of enjoyment and understanding that you're going to get more enjoyment if you're, you know, still have some hunger. It, I, I equate it to... Um, I drink very little wine, but when I do drink wine, if I go out to a nice restaurant, I can only drink three quarters of a glass of wine. My body tells me that if I go beyond three quarters of a glass, I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night wide awake as I've metabolized the wine and uh, not be able to sleep well. I'll feel hungover the next day. I'm a lightweight, you know, okay, it doesn't take a lot. <laughs> Same. But I stop at three, yeah, I stop at three quarters of a glass, even though it's it may taste delicious and I may feel sad that I'm not drinking the whole glass, but I stop because of my self-care because I want to feel good. And that's what intuitive eating is about. You want to feel good. You want to have satisfaction. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. The, the, this mindful uh, way of, you know, this mindful attention to enjoyment is I think a really great way to frame it. You mentioned that this is something that we're all born with, you know, we, you know, babies have, and, and no, and by the way, nobody feels bad about feeding a baby until they're not hungry anymore like that's we, we follow the baby's cues right. You, right you can't not if you don't feed a baby when that baby's hungry that baby's going to be screaming and there'll be no peace i mean that baby knows and knows right. how to signal that they're hungry same thing with fullness you cannot give more milk to an infant than that infant wants they'll turn their little head and spit it out so right of course so right. if we okay so if we're if this is something that we're born with and okay, if you're talking probably about someone, let's say I'm, I'm about to turn 27. So I'm in my late twenties. Let's just say that this is work that I have to do on my own. I've already been screwed up by diet culture, but there are plenty of people around my age bracket who either have families or are thinking about families or, are you know, or, or have children of their own. Um, how do we not screw up our kids? How, well, like, you know, how do we keep that? How do we keep that intact? I know that's a loaded question because there's a lot oh. of ways you can screw up a kid, but the, um, you know, how do we keep that? intuitive nature of what a, you know what a, an infant knows that they need to eat how do we keep that intact through childhood and into adulthood well i have the absolutely most exciting best news that i have two colleagues who um wrote a book called how to raise an intuitive eater which is coming out on january 4th i fortunately didn't have to write it <laughs> had the opportunity to go through it. I consulted with them through the whole writing of the book and I wrote the foreword for the book. It is phenomenal. And so, um, as I say, it's, your, your listeners can't see it, but I'm showing it to you. It's called How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. And this book focuses on, the number one, the parents' relationship with their own bodies and food and how that impacts their children. I mean, kids love to, you know, do what their parents do. Parents are role models. So if a child is six months old and starting to be introduced to solid food and you put that child in the high chair, because most babies can sit up around that time, maybe a little later, maybe a little before, but, you know, sometime when they were starting to be uh, curious about eating some solid foods, put them in the high chair. Maybe if you have to put pillows on either side of them to keep them up and sit down with the family and whatever the family's eating, you cut little tiny pieces and you mash it a little bit and let that baby finger the food, put it in, put it in their mouth and no judgment about it. And also they watch while the family's eating a variety of foods and that's how they learn, you know, to eat 
many different foods versus being just uh, fed with a spoon. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with it sometimes, but just kind of given baby food and the food, the spoon goes into the back of their mouth. They don't have the opportunity to play with it or to um, really have a sensual experience with it. And they don't have any choice as to whether they want it or not, because it keeps getting, you know, open your mouth, the, the helicopter's coming or whatever. Um, so I think that what's most important is that you honor a child's autonomy. Your job as a parent is to provide the food, you know, to make the food, to make sure food is out there, it's cut up, it's, it's ready to go for meals, for snacks. And it's your child's job to decide how much they want to eat of it and how much uh, they don't want to eat and whether they like it or not and to not interfere with that. Uh, here's a little piece of information that I think your listener, listeners will appreciate. For the first year of life, a baby only needs milk for its nourishment. The solid food that they start being fed at six months <laughs> six months. I have a son who's 50. And when he was two, I'm sorry, two months, his doctor said to me, feed him rice. And I ground up the rice and I pureed it and I put it in his mouth and he spit it right out. He had little tongue thrust. So, but in any case, uh, whatever that food experience is from say six months to a year, it's just for the opportunity for that child to start experiencing the textures, the aromas, the taste, if they put a little bit on their tongue of food, you don't have to worry about stuffing food in a child's mouth that they won't be nourished. Their milk is enough to nourish them for the first year. I did not know that. That's actually pretty cool. Right, right. That's actually pretty cool. So what, when, when we're talking about older kids, let's say a, a real toddler or even like a five, six-year-old, at that stage when they have, let's say, more opinions, what are some ways that we can you know, make it easier for that child to eat intuitively? Well, first of all, it's based on developmental stages. Eric Erickson was a psychologist who um, wrote about the eight stages at the time, he called it man, the eight stages of man, it would be eight stages of human. And um, he believed that at these different stages, each developing human has to um, cha get challenged by a certain psychosocial task that they have to achieve. And if they achieve that, they can go on to the next and the ultimate goal is to have a healthy ego, healthy personality as an adult. At 18 months, to three years is when the stage of autonomy versus shame or doubt shows up. That toddler who's now walking, who typically, who's now able to pick themselves up and walk out of the room and then realize they can walk back in and see mommy or daddy or whatever, um, they're their own person. And so their task then is to do things autonomously and not be told what to do. The favorite word of a toddler is no. Time to go to bed. No, you know, time to put on these clothes. No, and eat this food. No. And so recognizing that developmental stage, you want to give your child autonomy. And that's uh, why I was saying just starting by not feeding them um, pureed foods. This process is called um, baby led weaning. It really should be called baby led solids, where the baby decides whether they're hungry or not. The baby decides which of the foods. You just put it out, you know, you mash up a little avocado, a little piece of banana, a little bit of papaya, whatever, put it on their high chair and they get to decide whether they like it or not. So by the time they're they're really running around and at that developmental stage of, of autonomy, um, 
they get to decide how much they eat. The parent can say, would you like to have this or that for dinner? You know, give them two choices, not too many because it's overwhelming. They choose. And then if they don't want it, they don't eat it. There's none of this mommy, you know, mommy feeling guilting the child. I but I worked so hard cooking this for you and you don't want any of it. Puts a lot of pressure on the child. The child can, is able to maintain that incredible um, relationship with food. And I, I will tell you this, Rev, okay, I've been doing this for so long that I have worked with people who have then gone on and had children. And these children, some of them are in college now. Pure intuitive eaters never had any eating issues any disordered eating, eating disorders, because they raised them as intuitive eaters after they healed their own diet mentality. So that seems to be kind of the crux of it is that if you heal your relationship with food and how you eat, that naturally becomes a part of how your family unit functions. Exactly. And look, parents are trying to do the best they can. They think that they're doing the right thing while, while they're pushing in the carrot in the child's mouth. You know, I want you to be healthy. I, they're so so worried that their child won't be healthy. I understand that, but we have to look at mental health as well as physical health. And mental health is key for a child to grow up developmentally healthy. So, right. Yeah, for sure. It's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different parts of health, you know, and mental health is, is a huge aspect of that as well. So there's, there's a lot to consider, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, as I said, this is very nuanced intuitive eating and bringing up a child as an intuitive eater is nuanced. This is not just a quick ABC and you got it. Right. If only life were that simple. I just want a recipe to follow. Right. And uh, that's, I said something like that in the forward to this book I was mentioning, the how to raise an intuitive eater. There isn't that, but there is understanding and there is first healing your own relationship. And by the way, um, finding if you have the ability and the privilege to uh, have somebody counsel you, finding someone who's a certified intuitive eating counselor, which on the intuitive eating website, um, intuitiveeating.org, there are um, thousands of them around the world. So you put in your own um, city and you can see what comes up. It's, it's best if you can to be guided through this. If you can't read all the books and with an open mind. Yeah, for sure. I love, I love that approach. If there is like a quick, um, see, this is hysterical because I'm about to ask you to do exactly what you just told me you can't do. <laughs> but if there's somebody listening who uh -huh. wants to uh, incorporate intuitive eating into a small way, into the way that they, that they eat or that they relate to food, what are some, what, what is something that, that people listening can do right now to just, just to, to, to become a little bit more, to, to eat a little more intuitively, well, if not necessarily embrace the whole concept? Start with it's recognizing the damage that dieting has done to them. Recognize that they um, don't want to live their lives that way again and commit to never dieting again. That's the first thing I say to a client. If you think you have a diet in the future, you're going to try this intuitive eating thing for a while. And if it doesn't work, you'll try I don't even want to name these awful diets out there. Um, it's never going to, you're never going to be able to be in tune with yourself and aligned with your, what your needs are and your body's needs. So number one is no more diets. If you're not, if you need to go on three more diets before you finally say enough, I'm never doing a diet, then do it if you need to. But you have to be at that point where you realize that dieting is not the answer. That's number one. Number two, what I was saying earlier, put your focus on satisfaction. Make your meals um, 
in a way that you enjoy the food. Sit down and take a take a moment. Don't just rush through it while you're going through your social media and not even taste the food. Notice the taste. Notice the texture. Notice the satisfaction of the food. And don't worry so much about hunger and fullness because if you're thinking about satisfaction, it will lead you there to eating what your body needs. And sometimes it's your mind or your soul or your heart that needs something like we were talking about earlier and let yourself have the freedom to enjoy whatever it is that's going to soothe you while developing other mechanisms as well. I mean, we want to have, you know, other things at hand to help us get through some emotional times. Right. Also deal with your emotions. Don't just rely on the ice cream. Well, well, right. Because it won't work. You see, if it's just comfort, there's a whole continuum of emotional eating. So if you start with satisfaction, that's an emotion. If you go to a comfort, that's an emotion. But if you keep going and it turns into a binge, it's no longer a positive experience. You're, you're pushing away feelings. You're trying to stuff them down. They'll come back up. So we need to develop other means of mindfulness. We need to have, you know, sometimes have help in dealing with our emotions. We need to have fun activities in our lives that can give us a moment of distraction, things like that. Right. Yeah. That, that all makes perfect sense to me. This has been such a great, uh, th- this was really fun to do, I have to say. And thank you so much for taking the time to do it with well, me. If welcome. somebody wants to learn more about you, Elise, or about intuitive eating, where can yeah. they go? Okay, so me, I have my own personal website, which is EliseResch.com, which is different than the intuitive eating website, which is intuitiveeating.org. You can learn so much about it through everything I've written on there. I even have words of wisdom and book recommendations and all kinds of things on my website. I also kind of dabble in social media. My uh, Instagram, I don't really know how to post things, but I do know how to repost things on my story. You do a great job. Thank you. <laughs> so pretty much every day I'm putting out things that other people have had the talent to put together. And they're, of course, of course their name is always on it, but um, it's at Elise Resch. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, but that I don't spend a lot of time on social media because I have too much else to do. Um, the, uh, let's see, the other way is through the books. So I have, you know, two that I've personally written as a solo author, which is the Intuitive Eating Workbook for Teens and the Intuitive Eating Journal. And then I co-authored Intuitive Eating, make sure you get the fourth edition that came out last year in, two, in 2020. The older ones, just throw them away because they have, they've been updated. Um, and uh, the Intuitive Eating Workbook, not the teen one, but a the grown-up one. And um, we have an intuitive eating card deck that just came out also, which is 50 bite-sized ways to, I don't know, I have it here. I can't remember this, but to heal your relationship. There it is. Bite-sized ways to make peace with food. And that's kind of like a tarot deck. You just pull a card, any card, and you are able to work on it. But that's not the first place to go. You need to learn more about what intuitive eating really is before you can play with that deck so like i said there are a lot of resources for this a lot of resources and i highly encourage anybody listening to to explore them even if you're listening to this and you're thinking like yeah but this still sounds like a load of hooey and i don't want to mess with this learn more can hurt if if for only hate follow it you'll enjoy it um if if for only that you know just to i think that these are really interesting concepts that we don't we you know, we, we don't, we've never really, I at least was never exposed to them in any kind of capacity until I reached adulthood. And that was, and they really changed the way that I looked at food and, and, and just related to the way that I eat. So the, thank you for putting that out there in the world. I really do appreciate and it. I also want to make sure that nobody feels guilty for thinking they want to lose weight. 
even though, you know, I've, I've emphasized intuitive eating is not a weight loss plan. It's not a diet, but how can you avoid diet culture that tells you your life's going to be better if you're, if you're thinner? So don't hate yourself for it. Don't be feel guilty. Do know, however, that there's a lot of work to be done in body acceptance, body respect. And I like body liberation where you can enjoy life, live your life without feeling there's anything wrong with your body. Do the things, you know, do the things that you're not letting yourself do because you think you have to wait until your body changes. I love that. I'm going to end off with the question that I ask everyone who comes on the show. And that is to you, Elise Rush, what does it mean to make an impact? Oh my goodness. Well, First of all, I'm Jewish, and so tikkun olam, I really want to help repair the world, and I feel that um, intuitive eating can free people, can give them that incredible sense of trust in their bodies and the freedom to just enjoy their lives and let go of the diet mentality, and so that impact is powerful for me, and I believe that each person who changes their way of thinking, who learns something new, might in some way influence some, someone else, perhaps their child, perhaps a friend notices that they're much happier and they're free of this diet mentality and they are curious and they want to learn. And before you know it, how does the world change? You know, one person affects another. So that's how I think of the answer to the question. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Elise. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. Elise has graciously offered to come back on the show to answer any questions you may have about intuitive eating. Email them to Rifke at impactfashionnyc.com and be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss that follow-up episode when it comes out. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 16 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fatman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rivki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making impact together.